The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Leadership today is more than just a position in an organization. It's also a mix of proven practices that produce results. Welcome to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. Our program will bring you the how and why of successfully led businesses or organizations with not-for-profit goals and how you can apply the Adesis Methodology and make it work for you. Now, here is Dr. Ishak Adesis. Hello, 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 hello to everyone. I understand that this has been broadcast all over the world and I even get some emails from people from Russia and from Ukraine and from other countries. So I'm very pleased and flattered that I've been heard and listened to worldwide. So we have two more segments in this package of 13 and I was wondering what will be appropriate, the best time of our, best use of our time. In the next 13 segments, I will be doing interviews and I will be ending presentation of my theory uh, and then show how it works in reality. So the last two segments, I think, is what we are going to do. Today, I'm going to be giving some explanation or maybe telling you how this methodology this methodology developed what are its roots where it came from uh, I thought it would be interesting for people to know All right, so let's uh, look at it um, how it started really where did it start because many people ask me where did they get the insights from? Where did they get this theoretical framework? I mean, <laughs> they descend to me in a dream or what? Uh, I sure didn't read it in other books and related to other books. So where did it come from? It came from, exp- uh, they will ask me even, is it because I had a lot of experience managing companies? Which is really not true. I uh, got my BA in economics and political science from Hebrew University in Jerusalem, then came for my MBA and PhD from Columbia, and before I even started writing my dissertation, UCLA offered me to come and be on the staff of UCLA Graduate School of Management. So I really practically never managed anything. So where did I get these insights from? Here is how it started. The first exposure that I had that turned me upside down, really twisted my head totally around, was when I did my doctoral dissertation. It was 1965, I think, yes, my God. Uh, 
long time ago. And uh, uh, a visitor from Yugoslavia was visiting Columbia University. He was a head of management development programs, executive development programs for, for the Federation of Yugoslavia. And he was telling my professor, Professor Newman, about some what we called strange way of managing that they were developing in Yugoslavia at the time, so-called self-management. Uh, other countries used to call it industrial democracy. And my professor, who happened to be later on the chairman of my doctoral committee, got interested and he said, why don't you, Itzhak, since you were born in Yugoslavia, since you speak Yugoslav language, why don't you go and investigate this very strange methodology, this system of management? What was so strange about it is that they turned the management theory and practice on its head. They applied the democratic system as we know it from the New England little town halls where the town hall manages itself in a sense by voting and electing its mayor, etc. And having an executive branch and a legislation branch. They applied it now to companies. What happened in Yugoslavia was then starting 1948, they split from the Russian communist bloc. They left the common form and they denounced actually Stalin. And they were trying, Tito and his group, was trying to find a new way to manage, which was not the communist central planning system, but at the same time was not the capitalist system of the West. So what would be a new system somewhere in the middle? And they called it self-management, which means applying democratic principles to the management of companies. And how did it look like? Well, we have the legislative branch, which is like we have a parliament or a senate in the macro systems. They have the workers' council. And what does it mean? All the workers would elect the workers' council. That was the highest decision-making organ in the company. And that decision council decides who the managing director, who the president of the company is going to be. Uh, candidates will present their plans for the company for the next four years. And then one of them will be elected by the workers' council. And then now this executive branch the managing director or president will present a budget which the Workers' Council has to approve, and that included wages, how much the workers should earn. It included the plan of action, uh, how many workers do we need in the company. Everything was decided by the Executive Council, recommended by the Executive Branch, which was a collegium, the president and his vice presidents. And uh, then the collegium, the Executive Branch, will execute these plans that the Workers' Council approved. What about ownership? Well, they had a new system, uh, <clears throat> never tried before, I think, unless you talk about the Russian kolkhoz or the Israeli kibbutzim, kibbutz. 
but it was more, much more developed than that. They had it, they called it social ownership. And what is social ownership? Like air and water, who owns air? Nobody does, right? Who owns water? Nobody does. It belongs to whom? To humanity, to society. What is our responsibility towards these social resources? Not to diminish in their value. We cannot pollute the air and we cannot pollute the water. Well, apply this now to all social resources. So the company had resources, had assets. To whom did these assets belong? To society in large. What does it mean? To no one in particular. Like the air and water does not belong to anybody in particular. But the management and the workers' council had a responsibility not to diminish the value of this asset, which means there would be no distribution of any salaries or any rewards to anybody until, first of all, depreciation was covered so that the value of the company cannot diminish. You cannot pollute the air as an analogy. Um, so the society in large, at large, owned all resources, and people had the right to use those resources, but they had to pay back the, the, the utilization of these resources, like a social rent, uh, equivalent at least to the amount of depreciation that assets required. <coughs> and what was the role of the trade union in the company? It was not a adversary relations like in the Western world, where the trade unions protect the workers, management supports it, it represents the owners, and now we have a struggle of interest then somehow between them in an open market through some hidden hand they will come to resolution of their conflicts and there will be the best solution possible in an open market. By the way, I'm emphasizing the word supposedly because we all know that this is not what's happening in reality. Management does not represent always owners that represent themselves and sometimes they even rob the owners to benefit their own self-interest, etc., etc. But let's not talk about Western capitalistic systems right now. Let's talk about self-management. So that was the model. Trade unions were not adversary. Trade unions were there to take care of the social uh, needs of the workers. They were doing a book of the month and trips and and, 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 and social welfare and and taking care of the people that were drunken or got forbidden drugs, and and the trade union was supposed to be providing health services and social services. Uh, it was a support activity and not confrontative activity. There was not supposed to be confrontation. It was a democratic system of self-management, workers' self-management. I wrote a doctoral dissertation about it, which was recognized by Columbia University as a distinguished dissertation and published by Columbia and the Free Press. Um, the book is still available. It went out of print by Free Press, but I still have it at the Jesus Institute. I keep it alive. You can get a copy of it, a very interesting experiment in democratization of society, industrial organizations. And then it was followed by a second book that I edited with the daughter of Thomas Mann, uh, Elizabeth Manburger, they call self-management, new dimensions of democracy. Um, I won't talk about here why it failed. What I would really like to say now is what did I learn from it? 
and how uh, from there I started developing the methodology. Let's do that after the break. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The Adesis Management Methodology increases the speed at which organizations are able to implement change and solve their problems. The methodology introduces an innovative process, culture, and system that allow organizations to achieve dramatic growth in both revenue and profits. Build your success from within. Adesis Management Methodology is delivered by the Adesis Institute with offices worldwide, introducing a new management paradigm. Visit www.adesis.com for the Adesis Institute today. The Adesis Speakers Bureau can present the Adesis methodology and its approach to harnessing the power of change to your top management team. The presentations, either in person or via a live video hookup, can be delivered in a two-, four-, or six-hour format. Participants can derive immediate benefit from the material and put their new knowledge to use right away. For luncheons, corporate retreats, and strategic planning meetings presented in a variety of languages, visit www.adesis.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. If you have a question or comment about the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to yolanda at adesis.com, spelled A like America, D like Denmark, I like Israel, Z like in Zambia, E like in Ecuador, and S like Spain. Now, back to the program. Uh, let's go over all the experiences I had and then talk how they influenced and impacted the development of the this methodology. So this was the first one. The first, I would say, that broke all the mold of everything I knew about. Um, it... Uh, it totally challenged everything I learned from my doc, from my management theory, from my doctoral thesis, from my doctoral uh, degree. Everything I knew about all at once turned out to be uh, <laughs> not the same way, not to be managed. Totally different. Like a dictatorship is different from democracy. And then I realized that uh, Western society, the difference between the communist or the fascist system, macro system, and how we manage companies is only one of degree of size. When communism is a one country, one company system, just one big company. But it's managed the same way, with central planning and with the organization structure, and and then you can fire people that do not listen to you and do, don't do what you tell them to do. It's a one, one, one company system. Uh, uh, as you can hear in my voice, I hope, uh, this uh, Yugoslav experience has blown my mind. It totally challenged everything that I thought was right, or at once was questionable whether it's right at, uh, at all. Uh, 
I went to UCLA and started teaching participative management and comparative management systems, comparing the management in Yugoslavia to the management in United States. And then I started learning the Japanese methodology of management. And then I was invited to go and lecture about Yugoslav system around the world because my book got quite a wide coverage. It was a very interesting experience, what the Yugoslavs were doing, and industrial democracy was in vogue in the 1960s and 1970s. And I went to Chile, when again there was a president, they were really getting all excited about these socialist experiments. And then to Peru, when they started industrial democracy, the industrial communities, it was called, also trying these experiments and comparing them to the Yugoslav system. That also, being Israeli, I had experience with the kibbutz and the moshav movements in Israel, which are cooperative systems where people, again, self-manage as well. And I started comparing notes. I said, what's going on here? What is this cooperative movement? What is all this self-management? What is this workers' councils and workers' management? How does it work? Why it works? Why it does not work? What are the benefits? And what are the liabilities of this system? And when I wrote my dissertation, as a matter of fact, in my book also with the daughter of Thomas Mann, uh, I was criticizing the self-management system of Yugoslavia, what's wrong with it. But then I started doing consulting in the United States. And then I realized, wait a moment, wait a moment. I could criticize the Yugoslav system because I was comparing their reality to my theory. But when I started comparing their reality to our reality, I said, wait a moment, that system has some advantages. That system knows how to deal with change better than we do. Because, uh, as I said it later on in my theory, people that row the boat don't rock the boat. By having workers' management and workers' participation, self-management, there is much less adversary relations. They are now really struggling to keep the company alive and they're more amenable to change than in an organization that is based on adversary relations. Management counts recommendations for change and there is a lot of resistance because there is no participation. He said, wow. Wow, wait a moment. For management of change, democratic systems are much better than hierarchical, quote-unquote, dictatorial systems. Even benevolent dictatorship is not as good for change as democratic systems. In other words, democratic systems are not efficient, but they're more effective. And dictatorial systems are more efficient, but less effective in dealing with change. Hmm. Well, I started having doubts now about the, what I was teaching, you know. And then uh, I was invited to do some consulting. And I remember my first consulting job. I'm really embarrassed now to talk about it. When I think about it, I said, oh, my God, I had the chutzpah. I had the nerve to go and consult with the level of ignorance I had. I was invited to consult to some small food brokerage in Los Angeles and I started teaching them 
for using the tools I was teaching at the university from my management theory books. You know, the planning and controlling and the budgeting and control systems. And I was totally stupid, you know. It really did not work very well. I was just using the books and it did not work. And then I started reflecting on my experience on the Yugoslav system. And I said, wait a moment. I'm coming top down. I'm doing, you know, like a consultant, making recommendations, making decisions, and then forcing it on people. Wait a moment. It doesn't work very well. This does not work very well. What is going on? As you can see, my doubts about the management systems that we practice in the West grew and grew and grew. First, by being exposed to other systems. And second, by being exposed to how it works in the practice and seeing the difficulties of how it works in the practice. The next experience from a totally different field again opened my eyes to look at the world totally differently than what I've known till then. 1969, really only four years after the experience in Yugoslavia, I, my good friend from Washington, Charles Mark, was visiting Los Angeles. He was one of the founders of the National Endowment for the Arts, and he was in charge of the art councils, of the state art councils around the United States. And his job was to give funds, financial support to the art councils. And we were sitting having a drink in Los Angeles downtown. And I jokingly said, Chuck, you have a great job. My God, giving money away, I mean, this is the easiest job in the world. Lucky you. And he looked at me and says, are you crazy? This is terrible. I said, why? Because giving money to this Different art organizations is like throwing money down the drain. They have no idea how to do budgeting. They have no idea how to control their budgets. They have no idea anything about management. All these artists are business-wise totally, you know, non-professional. And it really pains me to give them money. I don't know how to give them money and to know that I'm getting the benefit as it should be to use the money correctly. And it shook me up. I said, wait a moment, what do you mean? Don't you have management training programs for, for, for in the performing arts? He said, no, it does not exist. It, there is even a myth that the art, art administrators are born. You know, you cannot train them. They come from the arts. And he started joking. He said, the ballerina that breaks her leg becomes the manager of a ballet company. And a singer that loses her voice becomes a manager, artistic director of an opera. I said, what, 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 what do you mean you don't have training? He says, no, there is no training. Well, I jumped on the opportunity, and I developed the first program in the world, the first program, first MBA program at UCLA in arts management, how to manage performing arts organizations. And in order to have that program, there was nothing written about the subject. As I said, there was the myth that it cannot be done. I organized uh, with the financial support of the National Endowment two conferences with all the top arts administrators uh, of the United States to come for two days 
once in New York and once in Santa ba- in, in California, to discuss can arts administrators be trained and what they should be trained in. And we had everybody there, the managing, the, all the administrators from the New York City Opera, New York City Ballet, uh, Philar- Phil- the different philharmonics, even museums, and and then all the big foundations, Rockefeller Foundation, uh, Ford Foundation. It was a very, very interesting conference because some people were saying it cannot be done. Some people said, maybe it cannot be done, but it should be done. And then the Ford Foundation gave me a fund to go and study arts organizations around the United States and see what the heck is going on, how can we train people, and what do we have to train them in. And this was, again, a mind-blowing experience because as I was traveling and visiting all the performing arts organizations of any size, theater, opera, philharmonic, dance companies, from Joffrey to New York City Ballet to the theaters, uh, the the, anyway, many theaters, etc. And then sitting and starting consulting for the Los Angeles Music Center, uh, seeing it how it works from the inside, I realized another thing which was very important, and it is that in order for an artistic organization to succeed, it requires a complementary team. It requires an artistic director and an administrative director. Or as the New York City opera manager at that time told me, I and artistic director are two wings of the Austro-Hungarian uh, eagle. Both of them were from Austro-Hungaria, old man. And uh, this eagle, this New York City opera, will not fly just with one with one uh, wing. The same thing with the New York City Ballet. I met uh, Kirsten, who was a managing director, and he said, me and Balenstein are the ones that make this organization work. One is the artistic director and one is the administrative director. Then I started studying how this combination works and why is it necessary. started realizing that it's similar to a family. You need a father, you need a mother, you need a couple, you need a complementary team. Differences that work together do overlap, but how do they deal with the conflicts that arise from this from these uh, overlaps? And I started realizing the differences of styles and how different styles work out. So this was the second exposure, which is how to manage creativity, how to manage creativity. All the other theories of management, if you really looked at it at that time, 1969-70, were based on industrial experiences. Fayol was an industrial a mining engineer from France, who one of the fathers of management. Uh, my dear friend Kuntz, Harold Kuntz, based his theories of management on his experience as a consultant to the airline industry, to Hughes Aircraft. And um, um, Peter Drucker also had all industrial experiences. He was working for General Motors as well as a consultant. And here I was now working with creative organizations, a totally different needs, totally different industry. You cannot manage an opera like you manage a mine. You cannot manage a ballet company like you will manage a shoe factory. 
This was a totally different experience. And I started training the first arts administrators in the world and realized the difficulties of how do you manage when the creative element uh, needs space. You need to encourage it, you have to feed it, you have to support it. So you don't manage off artistic organizations, you manage for artistic organizations. And by the way, based <laughs> just on this one word, because of this one word difference, management of management of arts management, it was called, art management program, I was fighting the name and I said, no, it should not be arts management, you don't manage the arts, it should be management for the arts. Just for this small difference, two words, for the arts, I eventually gave up the leadership of the program and I resigned because I refused to train people who were going to manage the arts rather than manage for the arts. Uh, anyway, these were the two experiences so far. Three you have. My Yugoslav self did self, self, um, uh, um, uh, self-management, arts management, and my consulting experience with companies started coming together. There is a third experience, and then we'll put it all together, tell you how those experience developed that this is methodology. Let's take a break. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. Learn about applying the ADESIS methodology in your organization's decision-making process. Our comprehensive training programs include a three-day introduction to the ADESIS methodology, Breakthrough to Prime, and Leading Highly Effective Teams, a detailed seven-day seminar. The seminars are valuable for corporate leaders, key executives, and others involved in the decision-making process. Our trainings are available around the world and in multiple languages. For more information about these and other training programs available, please visit adesis.com. Join the Adesis Graduate School for online master's and Ph.D. programs. Get involved with in-depth research into how change can be managed on many levels across disciplines and cultures worldwide. The clinical programs train practitioners with methods that have been used with exceptional results by certified Adesis associates and clients for decades. Core concepts include the proven Adesis theory and spiral dynamics, an emerging theory of human social evolution. For more information, go to adesisgraduateschool.org. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. If you have a question or comment about the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to yolanda at adesis.com, spelled A like America, D like Denmark, I like Israel, Z like in Zambia, E like in Ecuador, and S like Spain. Now, back to the program. The third experience, the third leg, sorry, the fourth leg, 
First was self-management, industrial democracy. Second was arts administration, arts management, or management for the arts, not arts management. Third was starting to do consulting and seeing how the world really looks like. And now the fourth experience that was, again, shaking up all my convictions about management as I knew it, as I was reading them in the books, and as I was teaching the textbooks at the university. I think it was 1973. Uh, there was a very important center at the time, intellectual center, in Santa Barbara, California, called the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions. Uh, it was funded by a lot, a lot of money, by the, by the 20th Century Fund, which I think was an offshoot of the Ford Foundation, or something like that. And uh, it was led by a very interesting person. His name was Bob Hutchins. Bob Hutchins was a very interesting person because when he graduated from Yale Law School, at the age of 23, his professors elected him, at the age of 23, as their dean. I hope you hear me well. He was a dean of the Yale Law School at the age of 23, because his term papers, seminar papers, influenced the thinking of the Superior Court of the United States. How do you like that, huh? At the age of 28, he was elected as the president of the University of Chicago. I mean, when you're looking for a genius, I mean, that's a genius, wouldn't you say so? Then he was uh, politically involved, and uh, when the McCarthy era started, and all this anti-communist uh, efforts were made, he got worried about the nature of democracy and now that McCarthyism is destroying democracy. And he suggested to this 20th century fund, or whatever it was, to establish a center to the study of democratic institutions, what makes democracy tick and what makes threatens democracy. It was the out, uh, outgrowth of the McCarthy era that he was fighting. And he had a beautiful, absolutely beautiful place in Santa Barbara, California, which, by the way, caused me to move to Santa Barbara. It was beautiful. And that place was, um, I would say, the pinnacle of my intellectual experience. It had seven fellows, permanent fellows, uh, some real luminaries, some very exciting intellectuals, uh, and then three, among the among the permanent fellows was Elizabeth Mann Borgese, the wife of the Borgese family, and uh, the daughter of Thomas Mann. She also came from University of Chicago, and she was dedicated to self-management, industrial democracy, and also to the sea, as in as a heritage of mankind to protect the open seas. Uh, to make it the heritage of society and not of any of the powerful nations that can exploit it and, and destroy our, our, our planet. Um, she invited me to come to be a visiting fellow 
at the center for, I think it was only three months, for, for one quarter, um, because of my experience with industrial democracy, with the Yugoslav system. Um, when I joined it, I realized how lucky I am to be invited to that place, because the other two people that were visiting fellows, we were three visiting fellows, the other one was Eugene McCarthy, who was a presidential candidate, and he lost the can he lost the presidency, but still was a very very high level individual. And Edward Goldsticker, Edward Goldsticker, very interesting person too. He was um, the first ambassador of Czechoslovakia to Israel in 1948 when Israel was established, and he's the one who brought. The guns, they called the Czechim, the Czech, the Czech guns to Israel, which enabled Israel to fight for its independence. But then, when he went back to Czechoslovakia uh, he, during the Slansky period, when Stalin had one of its paranoid attacks, and he was um, accusing everyone of everything, um, especially the Jews, he was because he was Jewish. He was accused of being a Zionist. And sent to Siberia for a for for a lifetime. Uh, then, when Khrushchev renounced uh, uh, Stalin, he was freed from Siberia, went back to Czechoslovakia, and became a professor of literature at the university there. Eventually, the rector of the university, and he started teaching Kafka, which Kafka at that time during Russian communist era was a forbidden book to teach. But it would be why, because Kafka was describing the communist system in action, uh, although not calling it by name. Um, and that started the thawing, the, the freezing of the communist system in Czechoslovakia. Uh, from the literature classes, a theater was opened up playing Kafka plays. And so the thawing, that, that was called the Czechoslovak Spring of 1968, started from his teachings at the university and from art, from culture. And then he was considered to be the father, the intellectual father of, of the uh, Czechoslovak Spring of 1968. Uh, and Dubček offered him to be the president of Czechoslovakia, which he refused because he was, I asked him, Edward, why did you refuse? He said, well, because if this revolution of ours fails, which we know failed, they're going to accuse the Jews, and I'm Jewish, and I did not want to have all the Jewish people suffering from this, as we caused all the trouble. So it was better to keep low profile. Anyway, we know the tanks rolled into Czechoslovakia. The Czechoslovak uprising was uh, defeated, and he knew that this time it's not going to be Siberia, but they're going to kill him. So he ran away and escaped to... England, there was a professor at Brighton University in Cooperative Literature. And I came also for a semester to the center. And what happened in the center with seven permanent members and three per, uh, temporary, what called visiting fellows. And every day we'll have somebody else from around the world, some intellectual, come and make a presentation of a paper to the 10 of us. We will read the paper the day before, and then we'll have about three hours in the morning of debate about the paper, which was recorded, edited, and the journal called the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions journal was distributed all over the world. 
and had a tremendous impact on the intellectual, on politicians, on the thinking. Uh, we, during the three months there, I met the top philosophers of France and of, of Germany and England and political scientists and you name it. It was an incredibly exciting intellectual time. And I learned a lot. Several things I learned. For instance, I asked Goldsticker why he thinks the revolution, Czechoslovak revolution of 68 failed. And he said one sentence that really stuck with me. And it is because we did not go down fast enough. I said, what do you mean down? He said it was not treated down to the grassroots fast enough. In a banana republic, when there is a revolution, they take over the television station, the radio station, and they believe they succeeded. Then the counter-revolutionaries take the radio station back and the television station back, and the revolution fails. You have to go the Mao Zedong way, which is what? Start from the villages, start from far away from the capital, and take over the country, slowly getting closer to the capital, and the last thing to take is a television and radio station. By that time, it's a cherry on the pie. It's finished. Everything else is in your hands. We did not do that. We went the banana republic way. And what did I learn from it? Change has to go not only with top management. If you want to change, you start with top management, but as fast as possible, descend to the rank and file. You must go to the roots of the tree if you want the tree to change. If you want to heal a tree, it's not enough to treat only the leaves. You have to treat the roots as well. What else did they learn from that experience? Well, Bob Hutchins, as you know, age 23, dean of Yale Law School, 28, president of the University of Chicago, an incredible personality. He was talking about something called civilized dialogue. Now, what does it mean? Just imagine you have 10 luminaries around the big table, everybody with a speaker with a microphone in front of them, debating a presentation of some unbelievable intellectual who made a paper presentation to us, a discussion about whatever subject could it be. They're like the impact of electronic libraries on democracy, example, okay? Huh. Or questions about crime in the modern society and how it impacts uh, democracy, etc. It was just mind blowing. And what I realized then is yes, it's very difficult to have a conversation with very creative people. Everybody has his own opinion. We start talking in multiple directions. It's not a civilized discussion. What is the roadmap that is going to make the people that are creative go at the same speed together in the same direction so that we can talk and share and learn from each other? Still united. Or how to be different than uniting. How to have a civilized discourse. How interesting. But I learned something else after the break.
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Top Leaf is a turnkey management development curriculum that consists of a set of 20 to 30 minute videos presented by Dr. Ishak Adesis, creator of the methodology and founder of the Adesis Institute. The Adesis methodology is considered by many to be a solid foundation for all organizational development. The Top Leaf curriculum is made up of three programs. Top Leaf can be used by individuals, by organizations, and by trainers and consultants looking for new content to offer their clients. For more information about TopLeaf, visit www.adesis.com. Dr. Ishak Adesis is one of the leading management experts in the world. He has written 14 books that address the challenges facing top management. Books by Dr. Adesis can be found in 24 languages. They can be purchased at the Adesis store at www.adesis.com or on Amazon.com. Electronic versions are now available for three of the books, with more to come. These books reflect over 40 years of study in the fields of management and organizational change. Pick up a copy of one of the books for yourself or as a gift today. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. If you have a question or comment about the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to yolanda at adesis.com, spelled A like America, D like Denmark, I like Israel, Z like in Zambia, E like in Ecuador, and S like Spain. Now, back to the program. What was happening in the center was that uh, Bob Hutchins at the time that I was there as a visiting fellow, he was already 70-some years old, and he was dying from leukemia. He was having cancer, and he was dying. And everybody was worried what will happen to this organization, this fantastic organization, this incredible intellectual think tank upon his death. He was a leader, powerful leader. Well, I thought I'm a management consultant. I am a professor of management. I should know something about succession planning. So I offered to do a little consulting job for free, no question. Just I will interview people and make my recommendations. Uh, That is my field, right? And I interviewed everyone, and I wrote a good paper and um, submitted it to Bob Hutchins. He read it. He totally agreed with me. And by the way, this paper still exists, and my friends that were at the center at the time, here it is, 40 years later. And we're talking about 40 years later, 50 years later. They still say that that paper was a prophecy. I predicted everything, and everything that they say is going to happen unless they listen to me actually happen. So it means uh, I was right. I was absolutely right. And uh, I basically say to them, they have to do certain things 
in order to institutionalize the leadership of Babachians because upon his departure, the whole thing will fall apart. He agreed with me, everybody agreed with me, and then what happened? Nada. Nothing. Nobody did anything about it. Although I was right, even 40 years later, with a you know, time perspective, looking back, I'm still right. But nobody did anything. So I started wondering, wait a moment, this is one of the smartest, brightest, intelligent people I've ever met in my life. Dean at the age of 23, president of the University of 28, leader of the intellectual world, not just the United States. And he agreed with me. So how come they didn't do anything? And what did they learn? Deciding is not good enough. Many very good decisions never get implemented. There is a totally different rules. There are totally different rules. What causes execution to happen? The basic assumption, which still holds in business schools, still today, that if you have a good decision, it will be implemented. That's why business schools, management schools, do not teach implementation. They only teach you how to make good decisions in marketing, in finance, in supply chain, how to make good decisions. Assuming that if you make a good decision, that's it, it will be implemented. How wrong. How wrong. I learned this 50 years ago. Outstanding decisions often don't get implemented. And lousy decisions get implemented. So having a good decision is not a prescription for implementation. Wow, what do I do now? Well, there was one more experience, and that would be the end of all the experiences before I put it all together. As I was managing the arts administration program at UCLA, Los Angeles Center invited me as a consultant. Again, here I come, arrogant as a management professor, young professor, thinks that he knows it all. And I said, sure, I can show you how to make more money. Uh, but because I had the experience of before with that food brokerage that I was not that right and not that knowledgeable, this time I wanted to be sure I don't end with an egg on my face. And I documented everything I claimed with numbers, like a very good consultant. I showed them how to make net $1 million more a year. How do you, and they documented it. Basically what they did, well, I found out how much it cost them to have the garage, how much, it, how much money there is in the restaurants that they are leasing. And I found out that the county of Los Angeles provides the services of the garage and the county leases the, the restaurants, not the people of the music center. And then the county gives them some support in, 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 in volunteers to tell you where to sit, you know. Wait a moment. I did a tender. I asked people to bid on managing the, the, the garage and to bid on managing the restaurants. And I got competitive bids, competitive bids, fully documented. The difference between the expenses and the revenues that could have been received is $1 million. I wrote the report. That is, I think we were 1970, 1971, it's 40 years ago. And then the managing director of the Los Angeles Music Center called me in 
and gave me a piece of paper and said, would you please sign it? So I said, sign what? And I read what is written there, and it was written that I've never done this research. I don't have anything written. I don't have a copy of the report. Nothing exists. Does not exist. I had to sign that. Well, since I got paid, I felt I'm obliged to sign it. I signed it, but I was shocked. What did they do wrong, sir? What did they do wrong that you don't want to recognize this research? Million dollars a year. He told me, well, Dr. Adizas, you're naive. You're suggesting here a political bomb for us to kick the Los Angeles County out of the Los Angeles Music Center. Do you know what you're talking about? Do you know the political upheaval you're going to create here? And then I learned a new thing, something called politics. Oh, my God. Here I'm teaching management theory. I'm teaching management behavior, sciences, blah, blah. I didn't really pay attention to political game gamesmanship of a, in, a, in, a, in a company. Like I didn't pay attention to styles. I didn't pay attention to power games. I was teaching something mechanistic. I was really depressed. I was really depressed. I said, oh my God, how can I be a professor of management? None of my recommendations get accepted. None get implemented. And although I'm right, although everybody says I'm right, everybody applauds that it is very bright and intelligent and outstanding, how come they're not doing it? What's wrong? Then I talked to some consultants and they laughed at me and said, don't you realize that the probability that consulting reports will be implemented are very, very low? And all this management training and development people learn and they don't implement what they learn? In other words, there is a problem called implementation, execution. Even in medicine, people are given medicine and they don't take it. It's called compliance. That triggered my thinking. Okay, how do you make change actually happen? Not planned, but actually happened. And that was the birth of the thesis methodology. In the next segment next week, maybe, we should talk about what did they derive from all these experiences and how the methodology developed. Thank you very much, and please write to me. Please tell me how you like this program so I know somebody is listening. Thank you very much, and goodbye. This is Dr. Adizas. Thank you again for joining us this week for Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. Please tune in again next Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy your weekend and a successful week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.